0: All right, so we're continuing a series on the subject of uh, the prophets. And uh, the the idea is a new world that we're in, which is an ever-changing world. You have these people who spoke uh, to their world at their time in the Scripture, and yet their messages that they spoke and that they wrote and the way that they lived still has relevance for us today. So the idea of these old messages are still relevant for a new world. Um, And you can listen to the previous uh, messages before, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube, where audio is on Apple Podcasts and uh, Spotify and Podbean. But just to review, oh, I see you're here, Lee, back from Toronto, good to see you. Uh, Just uh, to review, what are the three prophets that we've we've covered so far? They're all so-called minor prophets. Jonah, yeah. Joel, yeah. And Habakkuk, however you pronounce his name. Okay, good. So today we're going to do another so-called minor one, and we only use the term minor by convention. It just means their work is smaller. It doesn't mean their message is smaller. And I like to talk about the minor prophets because they're short. And you can read this guy in uh, another, you know, this will take you 15, 20 minutes. And this is another one like Joel that you need a cup of tea because he's, He's, he's speaking to some pretty heavy stuff here, as most of them do. And uh, the name of the prophet we're covering today is Malachi. Malachi, okay? Still a name that's used uh, today. People still call their kids Malachi, which is neat. But remember, these prophets, what they did was they would proclaim or forth tell. So they would say, this is how God... Sees things, this is how God feels about certain things, and then at times they would foretell and they would predict and they say, This is what God is going to do uh, in certain conditions. And you had diff- they wrote at different times, they spoke at different times before the period of the kings, during the period of the kings, then you have these prophets who wrote. And today we'll look at one of these prophets who wrote and his big current event um, uh, around the time that he writes is the last of a chain of big current events in, in that time in, in Israel's history. And this is when the temple was rebuilt, from it finished in around 515, 516, and you see it dedicated in the book of Ezra. And so this is post the, the dedication of the temple. In fact, it's several decades after the dedication of the temple, and you have this prophet Malachi which means my messenger or messenger. This book, interesting, it's the last book of our Old Testament. So if you, if you look at your, at your Bible, paper, electronic, doesn't matter, you'll see he's the last in the chain. And he, the way that we order uh, the, these books in, in uh, modern Bibles is we try and order them by genre of literature. And so we put Malachi at the end. Uh, Curiously enough, though, it wasn't that way in Jesus' time, and uh, the so-called Hebrew Bible does not order the books the same way that we do. It's the same content, but different sequence, different books, and uh, this book would be somewhere in the middle of a Hebrew Old Testament, but regardless, the same content is there. And you see uh, there's a prediction at the very, very end of the book that we'll get into, which is another reason why we we tend to plop it at the end in sort of modern uh, English Bibles. But he's dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. There's a spiritual lethargy that's developed in Judah, in Jerusalem, So it's decades after the temple has been dedicated and the people have become lethargic. The people have lost their zeal and there's several other things that have crept into the community. There's corruption in the priesthood that Malachi is going to deal with. The way that people are treating each other, the relationships that they're having with each other are broken and if there's one prophet who's politically incorrect, It's Malachi. There's harsh language in this book. He is using strong, strong terminology. If you read this book, we're reading an English translation. You read this even in the English translation, you're like, wow, this is not, we do not talk like this to people in the 21st century. He's very direct. He's very harsh, and he doesn't care that the people may think that he's harsh. He's quite direct. So you cannot read this book with your kind of 21st century sort of uh, uh, l- polite language. It is not written in that kind of language. It's very, very direct. But the issues that he's dealing with are issues you'll see that we deal with even today. And so what he does, the way this book is, is laid out, is that he's going, to, he's going to pronounce things on behalf of God, And then the people are going to push back and they're going to, he's going, so he's going to say, God says you did this or you said this, and the people will push back and they will challenge him. And then he will push back and he will say, well, this is what God says. And so there's different issues there that he's picking on that he sees again in the priesthood, in the community of of Jerusalem and, and broader Judah, that he sees, and he, he is not liking what he sees. God is not liking what he sees, and he has appointed this man to speak on his behalf. And again, you'll see there's this pushback and then response, pushback, response. So it's, it's sort of like an argument that's taking place here. Uh, so you'll, th- this is the way that it's laid out, and there's about a half a dozen of these these, uh, uh, these subjects that are dealt with this way. Uh, first, uh, a first question, first problem. Right off the bat, you see it in verse 2, Malachi chapter 1. And, and God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Verse 2. So God is declaring his love for the people And yet the people are saying, but how? How have you loved us? It's a kind of a skeptical response that they give toward this declaration of God's love. And he goes into an explanation, and very politically incorrect the way that he says it. But basically what he's saying is that, well, Jacob was chosen, not Esau. Remember the the twins, Jacob and Esau? How many of you remember the old Bible story from the book of Genesis? Genesis. Right? And you remember, I'm an identical twin, by the way. Okay? And I'm uh, 20 minutes... Uh, yeah, I'm the youngest by 20 minutes. And in, in my uh, situation, I sat on my twin brother's feet the entire pregnancy. So when when my mother delivered, uh, she delivered him first, and then, of course, delivered me 20 minutes later. His, his, his name is Nathan. My name is Joseph, so Bible names. And and the only way she could tell us apart was because I sat on his feet. His feet were pigeon-toed like this. And so he had to wear a brace to straighten out his his feet, okay? So I relate to Jacob and Esau because they're twins. But you see how God says, well, I chose Jacob. I did not chose uh, choose Esau. And so the line of Israel and of Judah is coming from who? It's coming from Jacob. This is who I chose. How can you say that I have not loved you? Now, the language that he uses is a lot more graphic. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. See, very politically incorrect. But what he's saying is, I chose you, and yet you're saying, I don't love you, it's a good lesson for us to remember. When you become a follower of Christ, it is by what that you are saved? Starts with a G. It's on your screen. Yeah, by grace that you are saved. You didn't go and wake up and say, well, today I'm just going to choose God. I just feel like it. No, no. By grace, He chose you. By grace, He brought you into His kingdom. By grace, he worked on you over years and years and years and called you when you didn't even know his name. He called you by grace, you see. And this is a great lesson for us to remember, not by works, the New Testament writes uh, or says, uh, that anyone should boast. It's by grace you are saved. You know, sometimes when when we teach people or we talk about becoming a Christian, We say, well, you know, you need to receive Christ in your life to become a Christian. It's true. But in many ways, it's Christ who's receiving us. It's not just us receiving him. It's by grace that he comes and he chooses us and he plucks us out of of darkness. Second complaint that comes up here uh, is is directly uh, uh, toward the priesthood. There's another person who went after the priesthood and the very religious people in his day, and you're going to see that these complaints sound suspiciously like him in the New Testament. Who is it? Starts with a J. No. Well, John, a little bit. Starts with a J. It's Jesus. You're going to see that Malachi... And the way that he goes after the priesthood is strikingly similar to some of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels to the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And so here's Malachi in chapter six, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, speaking to the priesthood, and he says, it is you, O priests, who have shown contempt for my name. And, of course, the people in keeping in respond back, and they say, how have we shown contempt for your name? Forgot the R there in my slide. How have we showed contempt for your name? And he explains to them that what they have done is the way that they worship, and, again, politically incorrect, remember, but they have a whole system of animal sacrifice in their worship. And the priests have a very important job of representing the people before God in the presentation of these animal sacrifices. This is, you know, 2,500, 2,600 years ago. We're talking 450-ish B.C. that this is written in, that the temple is there. It's been dedicated. It's in operation. And yet what we're seeing in this text is the food and the animals that are being presented blemished, Uh, they're supposed to be unblemished, perfect sacrifices that are brought, and here they're bringing blemished, uh, crippled, again, politically incorrect terms, diseased animals to present before God for these sacrificial offerings and so on. And in that time, in that day, in that system, that would be cheating, So the priests are saying, well, we're going to keep the really good livestock back behind and we'll give God the livestock that we would rather not have. And, you know, the the animals that have disease and so on and so on. Again, remember, it's politically incorrect. But the point is that what God is saying is you are priests. And what you are doing, and he even uses the word cheat there if you read through the text, you're cheating in your worship. And and this is unacceptable for you. You are the priests, and he gets into it. Opens the door for a litany of complaints that you see there, uh, chapter two, verse um, verse eight. You know, try bringing those to to your your governor. Try bringing those to another leader. This is not acceptable. What you have done, uh, uh, chapter two, verse eight. Excuse me, he says. Um, Uh, you have turned from the way, these people are supposed to be teachers, they're supposed to be instructors, you have turned from the way, and by your teaching, you have caused many to stumble, again in verse 8. In verse 9, you have shown partiality in matters of the law. So the way that you are meeting out the law in the, another job of the priests in that day, you're showing partiality. You're not even being fair in the way that you deal with people. So the stuff you teach causes people to stumble. You cheat in the way that you worship God. You show partiality in matters of the law, and he is going right after these priests who are supposed to be in charge. They're the spiritual leaders of the community, and he is confronting them very, very directly, and he's, he's, he doesn't really give them a solution. Uh, you would assume that they would understand that they should repent from this. So it's quite an indictment that the prophet is giving here, and this is very, very similar to what Jesus does, often, as you see in the Gospels. Who does he go after? The ultra ultra religious, and with him, he ha- with them, he has issues. He has issues with what they teach. He has issues with the way that they live. He has issues with their hypocrisy and their pretending. And he has confrontation after confrontation with them, not unlike what we see in this minor prophet uh, Malachi. And then you get another. Another uh, indictment, another complaint that he's going to issue here, this is in verse 13, verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, and you weep and you wail, because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands, and you ask, why? Why? So the people trying to get God's attention, offering these things before God, weeping and wailing, and it's like God is deaf to them. He's not paying attention to them. Again, remember, very politically incorrect, this prophet, but this is what's going on. And he says, you ask why? And the answer is stunning that he gives. And it's really in two parts of the text. And he says, what you have done is you have broken faith. And here, it's not specifically faith with God. It's faith in the way that they're living with one another. And more specifically, number one, what you have done is that you have permitted marriage to, and he uses the term, foreign gods, So you have people who are Jews, who worship Yahweh, and they're marrying uh, people outside of the faith. They're marrying Canaanites or whatever, who worship all these different gods. And this was a specific, specific command for them in their time. You marry inside the faith. This is how they preserved their faith, the Jewish people, and even today, I might add, this is still uh, something that is commanded. In that religious view, you do not marry outside of the faith, and even when you extend this concept into the New Testament, you see the same principle you've got to there's there's only one thing that God cares about when it comes to marriage there's only one specific Uh, rule, if you will, or one priority. It's not, well, does the person make me feel good? Or does the person, you know, look good? Or is the person this? Is the person wealthy? Or, you know, is the person the one? Or do they make my, you know, my, do I get shivers down my spine when I say their name? Or, you know, was there some magic coincidence that brought us together? And on and on and on it goes. No, that's not what God cares about. What He cares about is, are you marrying in the faith. that's what he cares about. I would sooner do a wedding of two atheists than a Christian and an atheist because when you take a Christian and you take an atheist and you try and put them together, even the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in the New Testament. He says what you got there is you got light and you got darkness and you're trying to put them together. You got two different faith systems and you're trying to put them together. When you put them together, what you get is shadows when you put light and darkness together. Better to have two atheists, two of the same religious view, whatever it is, maybe it's secularism, fine, than to have someone who's a Christian trying to trying to build a marriage with someone who totally is not and is not going to go there probably ever. This is a big, big problem, okay? Again, I told you he's politically incorrect, but even in our time, in our day, and I have done many weddings where, you know, you've got this kind of, well, this person's a Christian, this person's open-minded, Okay, how open-minded are they? You know, and I'll tell the couple, like you've got to be on the same page with your belief system you got to be on the same page. If you're not on the same page, you're headed for conflict if you don't get on the same page. Because your belief system, out of all of that, that's what's going to flow into your marriage. That's what's going to flow into your life. Show me a couple with two different belief systems. I will show you a couple in conflict. And here you see this same principle way back then in Malachi's time. And he's saying, you've broken faith. Why have you allowed this? You've allowed these Israelites to marry outside of the faith. What are you guys doing? You're going to cause problems. And this is what he's saying, again, very politically incorrect. But then he goes even further in verse 14 that's not his only issue again the people are saying well God doesn't hear us we're offering these sacrifices to God and God doesn't hear us it's like he plugged his ears and he's not hearing why 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 is he not hearing and what does he say also it is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth this would be directed toward men, you and the wife of your youth. Why? What have you done, men, he says, because you have broken faith with her. So what is God saying? He say, I'm not listening to you because you have a messed up, you broke faith with your, with your spouse, with your wife and you think that you can come to me and come and pray to me and offer all of your fancy sacrifices, I'm not listening to you because you have broken faith with your partner, the, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? And so he has a big issue, God, with this. Very high priority on family. He talks about children there. And yes, he, ha- he says this very politically incorrect statement in verse uh, 16. Uh, I hate divorce. Be careful. He doesn't say, I hate people who were divorced. He says, I hate divorce. Why does he hate it? Because it's it's a ripping away of that relationship. And especially when there's kids involved and he seems to be concerned about kids here. He mentions it in the in the text. But when there's that ripping and then there's that tearing, what God is saying is a very harsh word. I hate that. Well, if you put yourself in God's shoes, well with reason, and probably you hate it too. And there are people in our assembly who've gone through the the pain of divorce, none of you would be able to say, oh, I really love divorce. You'd probably say, I hate it. I hate that it happened. I never wanted it to happen, but it happened. We had no choice. We got to this place or whatever. There was an affair or there was this and there was that, and it ended the relationship, and it was brutal, and it was painful, and it was ugly, and when there was kids involved, it was even more ugly. You probably hate it too if you've been through it. And so it's striking here that God is speaking to these people, their their relationships with one another, their very marriages affect their relationship with him. Ouch. The same, there's, there's principles in the New Testament about this as well. Peter talks about this, and he talks about how husbands should treat their wives, and they should be careful lest that their prayers go unanswered. If they, if they mistreat their wives, he gives this warning, this Peter talking. In the New Testament, same kind of principle there. Your marriage does have an effect even on your spirituality. And here you've got Malachi addressing this, you know, twenty five, twenty six hundred 2,600 years ago. Next one, if you're still, <laughs> you're still able to swallow what he says here, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. There's things that you were saying about God, and he doesn't like what you were saying. Wow. How have we wearied him? Again, they push back verse 17, and here's here's the answer. And this is, again, just, this is like the 21st century complaint by saying, all who do evil are good in God's eyes, and he is pleased with them. Or you say this, he says, where is the God of justice? Seems like all these evildoers get off scot-free. It seems like they just, and where is the, where is the God of justice? Where are you? We're not impressed. We don't see it. And, and God says, you know, you're tiring me of these complaints. It's, it's interesting. You're wearying God. I don't know. Like, I, I wouldn't want to be in the place where God is saying to me, you know, you're really starting to get me tired. (laughs) You know, we say that God never sleeps or slumbers. It's true. And this is obviously, you know, uh, using an image here. But wow, he's getting tired of this complaint. Hmm, I wonder how he feels today. Because I've heard that complaint more times than I can count. Where is the God of justice? It seems like people who do evil get off scot-free. And he's going to give an answer to this charge at the beginning of chapter 3. And he says this, See, I will send my messenger, this is God speaking, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Remember, you're seeking the God of justice. Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I'm going to quiz you on this. Who's he talking about? You have the the advantage of being on this side of time. Who's he talking about? He's talking about two people there. John the Baptist and? Yes, and Jesus. So he's saying... You're looking at this, and you're looking at this with your little finite eyes, and with your, you know, you have your little box that you're looking at. I I am sending my messenger. He's going to precede me. The Lord is coming into his temple, and you will see that there's this judgment. There's image of judgment here or images that are used. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He's going to to clean, he's going to burn, he's going to wash, he's going to cleanse, he's going to judge. A messenger is coming, and I am coming. He's going to prepare the way for me. And you see in the Gospels that this is a reference to John the Baptist, who steps onto the scene, calling people to repentance, to prepare the way for none other than Jesus. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. We live on this side of the cross. Are you thankful for that? See, you see back in time, these people had to see forward in time, and we see the whole picture. And he's going to continue. He's not done yet. And he gets into uh, uh, the issue here that is often, often used uh, in churches today. He's going to start talking about, uh, we use the word tithe, or he uses the word tithe. And, but look how he says it in verse 8 will a man rob god yet you rob me another complaint and so the people of course push back and they say well how do we rob you like how can god be robbed that seems a little bit absurd and so the the answer to this in verses 8 and 8 to 12 Just hold on for a minute because I'm sure you've heard this text many different ways before. And he says, in tithes, which means a tenth, and offerings. Just remember the offerings before that the priests were offering, they had problems with quality. So they give the offering, but the offering is is an unacceptable offering by their standards. It's cheating. You're giving a, a, an animal that is diseased, crippled, whatever, and you're keeping the good stuff for yourself. You're supposed to give God the perfect sacrifices are supposed to be offered to God, and yet you gave poor quality. Well, here he's going to address quantity. And he says, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse. Curse. Okay, just just to open your eyes a little bit, when you see this word curse in the Old Testament, it take t- take the word and remove it from you know um uh what's the disney movie uh it, it, with the uh the princess uh tiana any of you have kids tiana you know princess tiana what's the name of that movie? The princess and the frog, okay, and you've got the princess and the frog and it takes place, you know, in the in the bayou and you got voodoo going on in there and these the curses and all that. Okay. You need to remove that definition of curse from your, your vocabulary. It's not a Disney movie. When he talks about curse here in the Old Testament God, what he's what he's saying here is the consequences for your actions and I'm meeting out those consequences. Think of the word curse in the Bible that way, and you'll be on a better track. So he says, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you were robbing me. Well, how? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, Hmm. that there may be food in my house. He didn't say money. He says that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, you I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not even have enough room for it. So what's the problem? The problem is they're holding back On their tenth or their tithe. This is part of the Old Testament law. Uh, You see it in Moses' writes of it in Leviticus and so on. And this is a standard that we see throughout the Old Testament, this idea of the tenth. You even see people giving a tenth before the law is even written. But what's going on here is the tenth is being, they're holding back some of it. And so they're not presenting the whole thing like they were supposed to. They present a little bit of it. And so God says, well, what are you doing now? You're robbing me in terms of quantity. Now, before you start thinking, okay, here comes the pastor with the guilt trip and the tithing and, you know, get the money and all of that and have a nice day. Uh, The temple in that time, that's the resource for Israel. It's the place that held the presence of God, and you see here, there's a storehouse there. And so the needs of the community were taken care of through the temple. It's not only this place of sacrifice, the needs of the community are also being taken care of, and what's being withheld here is really important. It's not like, well, you know, this guy in uh, 2600 BC, you know, withheld a little bit on his check, (laughs) No, no. This has to deal with the sustenance of the community is based on these offerings. It's talking a lot more about a resource, food, these kinds of things than it's just simply thinking about money. So the temple resource is lacking because the people are withholding. And so God has an issue with this. Now, fast forward to today today yes, I believe in tithing, I practice tithing, I, I, our church practices tithing, we tithe a tenth of what comes into our ministry fund, which you'll see on the envelopes there, we tithe that to our district, yes, I practice tithing, yes, I believe in tithing, I think you should tithe, yes, I think that if every Christian in every church actually, if all they gave was a real tenth of their income, you would have so many resources. If that happened around the world, you would have a, a, a revival, the likes of which we have never seen. Because most Christians in most evangelical churches don't get to that discipline. Some do, but many don't. And I think it's a discipline that we all should learn. Yes, yes, yes. But back in that time, folks, you're talking about the resources of the temple. And when the temple was under-resourced, the people could not receive the blessing that that uh, God wanted to give to them, and that's more what it's about. Think about the text teaching about resources more than well, you know, this where where's your money? It's about your resource, and the principle can be extended to today. We, we don't have a a literal physical temple today that holds the presence of god that we go to you know in jerusalem every year or three or four times a year for some feasts and religious festivals do we what is the temple what is the presence where does the presence of god dwell in us so we are the community of faith This is what church means. It doesn't refer to a place or a building. If there's anything that this church has learned in our six years is that the church isn't a place because we meet in a secular place. We meet in a movie theater. For a while, we met in a hotel just as secular. For a while, we met on Saturday, not even on Sunday. So if there's anything that we've learned is the church is not a place. The church is a community. So the resources of the community... Same principle. When when the community is under-resourced, when the community of faith is under-resourced, it can't do the things that God wants it to do as effectively. And I'm talking about a lot more than money. Let me give you a couple of really practical examples to come uh, uh, that you can apply this to in our time, in our church, that are relevant to us now. And they deal, both of them deal with kids uh, in the month of September, we're doing a kind of a special extended uh, uh, city kids on Sunday mornings for a couple of weeks called Heyday, Day, <laughs> growing in friendship with Jesus, really a take on the Lord's prayer. And we're going to have probably lots of kids. Guess what? Uh, our kids' ministry is under resourced. We need people who say, hey... I can give a uh, Sunday a month to, to serve with kids. I like kids and I'm willing to do that even once a month. you know Jenny Jenny can do things but she's she can't do things alone and she needs to grow a team so that we can serve kids as kids come. Where are they going to come from? Well, in on August the 13th, we're probably going to have 200 kids that we're going to serve all of these school bags and school supplies, which are hidden away in this building right now. We're probably going to serve about 200 kids. We'll have upwards of 350 people, I think, for our Back to School Bash, which is an annual event here where we give out for free school supplies, uh, school bags. The kids are going home with a nice little pack of uh, Bible cards because most of those kids who are coming are not church kids. Usually it's about 95% of the kids who come, no church background, zero, zero, zero. They're coming for the free stuff and we bless them and we show grace to them. We have a a chalk artist evangelist who's going to come and set up shop and have a a canvas that he's going to do a presentation on and uh, give a little bit of the gospel message at the same time and that kids are getting popcorn and all of this free stuff, they're going to get a great time, a great show, and they're walking away with really, really, you know, quality things that are going to help them. Why do we do that? Because we want to show the community that we exist. That we are here, and some of those kids we pray are going to start coming, and some of those families we pray are going to start coming. You can get involved in that. You can serve in that event. It's August the thirteenth. You can visit out in the desk in the foyer. Give four hours of your time from eight fifteen to noon. You're going to have a blast. You can give to the event school bags. Write it on an envelope. If you're giving electronically, put a little note in the in the note on uh, on the internet so that we know because it all costs money, right? So resources, resources, think about it that way. This is what God's issue is, is the community of faith resourced, not just with money, with people's gifts, with their time, with their talent. When people use their gifts and get involved and serve and resource, wow, you can do amazing things, and God still... He still got another one that he's going to pull out. I told you Malachi, very politically incorrect. And he says, you have said, now it's harsh things against me in chapter 3. And the people say on cue, what have we said against you? Verses 14 and 15, you have said, it is futile to serve God. God. It's useless. Why should I serve God? It's futile. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper. And even those who challenge God escape. Note the the, the words here. It's useless to serve God. You know, many young people say that when they get to, you know, they get to the point where they're not just going to church because their parents brought them and they have no choice, but now they can decide whether or not they go to church. And a lot of young people get to the point where they say, you know what, why? What's the purpose? It's useless to serve God. It's futile. What do I get out of it anyway? What did we gain? Evildoers prosper. When, when people say things like that, it's because the reason and the motivation to serve God or in our day to be a Christian is to get something out of it. What's, what am I going to get from God by serving God? This view and this mentality is off-center. Because you do not serve God, you do not become a Christian because of what God will give you. You serve God because if you don't, you're on your way to destruction. You're on your way to an eternity with your sins in hand, unforgiven, facing the consequences. If you do not serve God, then that's it's you and it's you alone and you just keep going that way. When you serve God, You serve Him because, wow, your sins are forgiven, because you can have a relationship with God, and you're not your own God anymore. Now He's your God, and you walk through life in fellowship and in community with Him. Regardless of what difficulties you face, you don't face them alone. Regardless of what successes you have, you don't succeed alone. Regardless of how you fail, you don't fail alone. You walk hand in hand with God ultimately for all eternity. That's, if anything you get, that's what you get. But it's not so, well, you know, I want to do well in life. I want money and, you know, prosperity and health and all these things. And I serve God for those reasons. And if God doesn't give them to me, if God doesn't give them to my family, then it's useless. Why serve God? Off-center the question. And here God is going to answer, and this is really how he ends the book. And he, the way that this is written is almost like things in the book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, the language is, is similar, you know. It, then those who feared the Lord talked to each other, and the Lord listened and heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. And he says, they will be mine. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And here's the ending of the book, uh, Uh, Surely a day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and the evildoer will be stubble. See the harsh, harsh language. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Tremendous images of judgment that are written here. And then he... uh, drops in at the end of this prediction. It's, a, it's an, an apocalyptic kind of prediction that he drops in. And he says this here at the end. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Who is that? The Elijah who is to come. Yeah, you see, when you read the pages of the Gospels, it's John the Baptist. He is the Elijah to come. He he comes with his, eating his locusts and honey, just like Elijah. He behaves a bit like Elijah. He talks like Elijah. And Jesus ultimately identifies him as the Elijah who would come, preparing the way for him. So, Conclusion, it's not useless to serve God because God is going to rectify the situation in a global sense, in a universal sense. He is going to ultimately mete out eternal judgment. So don't stray, it's not useless to serve God. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what is the... What is the application to our lives? Well, folks, we live on the other side of all of this. We live on the side of Christ has come. The debt for sin has been paid on the cross. The tomb is empty. We live in anticipation of the second coming of Christ in a time that these people only saw from a distance. But the conditions of the heart can be the same. We have this tendency to drift away from God. We have this tendency to become corrupt. We have this tendency to break relationships. What is the answer to this problem? Ultimately, it's in Jesus. Ultimately, it's in salvation. It's in a relationship with Him. So to conclude today, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. And if the musicians who are in the room, you can come and just play in the background. And we're just going to finish up in a word of prayer here today. We have the the advantage, if you will, of being on this side of time, where we can look back at what has already been done by God. At, at the grace of God displayed in Jesus. And we can respond to that. And we can open the door of our lives uh, uh, to him. And we can ask him, will you receive me, God? Jesus, will you take me? Will you forgive me? Can your grace extend to me? I don't want to continue living life the way that I'm living it. I don't want to be my own God. I make a lousy God. I don't want to keep living with this spiritual uh, isolation. I want to have a connection, a relationship with God as I walk through life. And that's available to every one of us today through the cross of Christ. So I'm going to pray a really simple prayer on your behalf and those of you online, I see you as well through the lens of that camera and you count too. And uh, maybe you want to pray something like this in your own way, in your own words. It's the beginning of grabbing hold of the hand of the Savior that's reaching out to you today. Maybe you come to church every Sunday, but you need to once again reach for His hand and say, Lord, I'm yours. Jesus, I come to you today and ask that you would forgive me for my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for me, and that you rose from the dead as God. And God, I reach out to your hand that reaches to me and ask you to receive me, to take me and to walk with me from this time forward, I pray, amen amen if you prayed that prayer that's the beginning of something i want you to come and see me you can talk to me privately you can message me all of my contact information's on our website facebook whatever you can do it that way come see me personally guests if you are here for the first time i'll be right in this area or out in the hallway please give me your guest card before you leave today The Lord bless you. Remember to volunteer. You can speak to Wedlund; She'll be at the desk on the outside. God bless you. Have a great Sunday today.